0: Physics world.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly podcast, which is sponsored by Pfeiffer Vacuum. In this episode, I chat with two physicists who create quantum experiments for use in space. They talk about the challenges of launching and operating sophisticated equipment in Earth orbit. And they also explain why physicists are keen to deploy quantum memories and other devices in space. But first, a word from our sponsor. Thank you to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this podcast. The company is one of the world's leading developers, manufacturers, and suppliers of vacuum solutions. Pfeiffer Vacuum has been producing innovative end-to-end vacuum solutions since 1890, and over the years it's collaborated with scientists working on some of the largest and most ambitious scientific experiments. For many years, Pfeiffer Vacuum has been a globally well-established and highly competent partner for space research. This involves providing huge chambers so that spacecraft can be tested under vacuum conditions on Earth. The vacuum chambers provided by the company range from small chambers suitable for lab applications to large-sized space simulation and coating chambers. Pfeiffer Vacuum offers both standard and customized vacuum chambers and solutions that are precisely designed to meet the customer's needs, and also meet the highest quality and engineering standards. Find out more at Pfeiffer-Vacuum.com. Quantum science and technology have been developing by leaps and bounds over the past few decades, so it's not surprising that quantum experiments are now being done in space. To learn more, I'm joined down the line by two physicists at the Institute of Quantum Technologies of the German Aerospace Center in Ulm, who have co-authored a paper that promotes the development of quantum memories for use in space. Lisa Werner and Jan-Michael Moll, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having us. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about the science.
1: Oh, that's that's great, Lisa and Michael. So the, the first question is a, a general question for you, Michael. Why do scientists want to deploy quantum memories in space? And how would the memories be used?
0: Well, so initially, the motivation for quantum memories actually comes from the field of quantum communications, where a quantum memory is basically a building block for what's called a quantum repeater. And it's basically a necessary ingredient if you want to do like entanglement-based uh, communication over long, longer distances. And over the past few years, there has been uh, a lot of going on in, in uh, research where, um, where um, people are looking into deploying these things in space. And on the way to there, there will be a lot of uh, fundamental science experiments that will actually probably be coming up first and some of these uh, experiments we are actually pitching in the in the paper as uh, possible venues for using memories in, in this uh, in this field
1: and so lisa uh, we've already seen uh, quantum experiments done in space C- can you briefly describe of some of the uh, some of these and what they've accomplished
2: sure so there's of course all of these cold atom research which started with with Mayus in the drop tower which produced the first BEC and the first uh, atom interferometry in microgravity which was led by a consortium of German universities and they then went on to develop further experiments such as Mayus uh, where Mayus A has been launched uh, on a sounding rocket and we're looking at further further missions to that which also go to space technically but currently for prolonged investigation there is CAL on the ISS which allows us to study su- things such as bubble BEC or surface interaction So, really long-term things with cold atoms in space, especially with atom interferometry. And we'll talk about b I guess, in a second. But there's other things to do with these. So, there's the one long-term goal for uh, cold atoms in space that is... um, tests of uh, measurements of gravitational waves and especially also tests of the equivalence principle such as the universality of free fall uh, with different species but also using atomic frequency references to do tests of uh, the the um, lorentz invariance local lorentz invariance and the um, position invariance some of these have been performed with galileo satellites in the past which went on a wrong orbit. Um, So you can see how we make use of basically everything that comes up, every opportunity that comes up. There's a wide variety of experiments that have been performed, not the least of which are experiments such as CUBE or SPOOKY or MISIOS targeting QKD with with, uh, sources very specifically.
1: And Lisa, you, you mentioned the um, upcoming BCAL mission, and, and that's a collaboration between the German Aerospace Center and NASA. Can you tell us a bit more about this mission? What, what, what will it accomplish?
2: Right, so building on Qantas and Mayas, where we really, were already looking into using cold atoms in microgravity, um, and with CAL present, we wanted to also expand on this uh, long-term microgravity environment, and so, um, basically in a collaboration with NASA, we decided what would be a a very impactful and and meaningful next step. And this is where BCAL originated to... for one, start to have uh, the dual-species atom interferometry, which also CAL already allows, but to really focus on these things. And um, it will also allow a variety of different traps um, and uh, manipulation tactics uh, for the for the cold atoms, such as Feshbach resonances, for instance, where we will be able to have really high magnetic fields on board and study the behavior of the particles inside of this um high magnetic field without having to use additional traps because we are very nicely, elegantly falling around the Earth.
1: So Lisa, you mentioned um, cold atom interferometry a few times. Um, Could you just let our listeners know what a cold atom interferometry experiment is and why you would want to do it in space?
2: To explain that, we would have to understand first the the cold atom ensemble or or what what it means, what I'm talking about, a cold atom ensemble. In fact, what we are talking about is probably best described by degenerate quantum gas. So if you remember that there are three states of matter, uh, solid, liquid, and um, gaseous, and you can even heat that further and go to a plasma state, another question is what happens if you go to the other side. So if you have something and you want to cool it down and cool it down and cool it down. And very similar um, to other transitions, you will have a phase transition into, if you use bosons, what is called a boson Einstein condensate. Here we go words. Um, Bose-Einstein condensate. And um, these are a unique state of matter because in difference to the normal idea of having a wave particle duality, a Bose-Einstein condensate is governed by one wave function. And now we are reminded of a laser. Like a laser is also one coherent state, very similar to this Bose-Einstein condensate, which you can also describe by one coherent state. And what do you do with that? Well, the first thing you do is interferometry. Um, and now we basically switch around everything we knew before from interferometry our test sort of subject is now the atoms no longer the laser and as opposed to using mirrors or hardware to actually perform the interferometry we are now using lasers to actually instigate the beam splitters and mirrors that we that we need and by that we now gain something which is um uh, susceptible to acceleration of any sort because we have these atoms which have mass. They will follow any acceleration. Um, and we have gained something with the atom interferometry, with the interferometry part, which is very precise in performing relative measurements and measuring the relative acceleration, not the absolute, but the relative acceleration. And as such, we use three... three. Um, Uh, laser beams to first have a beam splitter and then sort of a mirror arrangement to reflect the beams back onto one another. And then in the end, uh, again, a beam splitter to recombine uh, the two arms that we have created beforehand and thereby producing something that is super, super um, reactive to uh, gravitational fields or accelerations in general. And in the meantime, very um, very accurate in its measurement. This is an atom interferometer, and by that we can measure all kinds of differential uh, gravitational forces, as for instance, in the weak equivalence principle, which is basically the idea of throwing a rock and a stone on the moon, and you will see that they land at the same time. You can do that, I think they did it first from the uh, from the tower in Pisa, because it like had this nice inclination angle, and you could see the stuff dropping at the same rate. Of course, you have an atmosphere, so, um, the the friction will reduce the falling at some point. And now we want to take that to the next level to perform these experiments in space in a really high vacuum, um, either with BCAL or with a follow-up mission such as SD quest, which is very dedicated then to these experiments. Also at that point, I have to mention, this is not my idea. This is an idea that was bounced around in the scientific community and is probably led by uh, Professor Schleich and Professor Rasel from Ulm and um, Hanover, and is also sort of the the point of the development of all of these quantum um, experiments under microgravity that I just outlined and and and
1: so how how difficult is it i mean i would imagine doing an, an ultra cold atom experiment in in a lab on earth and creating an interferometer is probably a pretty tricky thing to do how what, what are there specific challenges involved in doing it in space i suppose you're limited in terms of how big the experiment can be how heavy it can be um, but i'm i'm guessing that there's probably uh, uh, m- many more difficulties involved in doing such experiments in space.
2: It absolutely is. You can already see that that uh, Mr. Kettler won the Nobel Prize for that only in the late 90s. So it is a rather new development for us to have it around, to have the technology around. Um, And yes, in a laboratory, you have this one student who knows very well what they do. And you have possibly some things that have no place actually in a lab, like a duct tape or something that this one particular student did at that one time. Nobody really knows why, but it's like voodoo and it works. And you lose all of that in space. So um, in space, you have a couple of of challenges. Um, The first one is, of course, that size and and weight are a big issue. Um, Weight especially costs a lot of money to bring to space. So miniaturization in this is is the obvious challenge and the other obvious challenge is automation so we don't have somebody being able to just tweak it we you can't access the experiment anymore once it's once it's in orbit However, there are some challenges outside of that that are sometimes overlooked. Uh, one of them is heat dissipation. Especially in an Earth orbit, you have enough power and especially on the ISS, you have usually enough power but getting rid of the heat is a big concern because you only have convection. Um, so there's no atmosphere to like uh, transfer the heat to. This is one big issue that is that is often under- overlooked. And another one is all of the space administration that comes with it. So it has to be safe. We have to go through all these processes. It has to fit with the requirements that come from the satellite of a certain orientation and we give the satellite some certain orientation so there are all of these things that have to um, that have to be accommodated for um, But on the other hand, this is a a huge huge chance for all of us because with that, we drive the people who actually have the knowledge of the technology to do that, to miniaturize the system, to have it robust also for the launch loads, to to make sure that it will survive all of these vibrations, um, to to make sure that it is run automatically, that it, for the ISS, for Beaker, that it is easy to repair, that we have some, some blocks that can be exchanged, and funnily enough, this is very much what industry would also be looking like down the, down the road. So if we want to transfer these technologies into an industrial application on ground or in space, this development for space is a huge pathway and is a big advantage on these kind of systems to make the quantum revolution happen in that sense.
1: And and when you talk about a, a, a sort of a small system or a system that's designed to be small and lightweight, are you talking about is this a, like a, a computer chip-sized system, or is it is it bigger than that? And would the computer chip size be the the ultimate goal of of developing these systems?
2: No, it's not. Um, Of course, we want to be as small as possible, but the size of the system strongly depends on what we are looking for. Um, When we are looking for something that can measure gravitational um, acceleration, we need to have a trade between the size of the instrument and the gravitational gradient that we actually want to measure. So here, size is something that we can't get rid of um, entirely. Also, for some of these systems, we can't get of these entirely, and we will come to that, um, I guess, a little down the road when we're talking about what kind of specifics do we need for the memories to to be to be manifested. Um, so there's there's this this trade-off for the. Um, technologies involved in anything with coherent light, things can be miniaturized a lot more because you need the laser and you need the source and you need uh, the memory behind that, as opposed to where you really want to measure something with high precision, where you need a big sensor to to just gain the precision. It's a physical constant, a physical concept inherent to the quantum system. Um, for magnetic field sensors, this is a bit different. So this strongly depends, the size that we can achieve, strongly depends on the system that we're looking at.
1: So Michael, in your paper that you've published recently, you look at several different types of quantum memory that could be deployed in space. And I'm guessing a, a quantum memory that's based on um, ultra-cold atoms would be one thing that, um, that you could deploy. Um, but are, are certain memory types more suitable for use in space missions than others. What, what, what sort of memories are you looking at?
0: Yeah, so it, it really depends on uh, what kind of um, experiment you're, you're looking at. So the advantage of the ultra-cold atoms at the moment is that with BECAL, we will um, have a ultra-cold atom uh, system in space. Um, so obviously, it's much easier to deploy um, a system on an, on a space station, such as the ISS, or maybe even the upcoming Lunar Gateway. Um, than it is to deploy such a system on a satellite. And um, it's not unreasonable that uh, we would test uh, quantum memories and cold uh, gases, for example, with BICAL on the International Space Station. Um, when it comes to like further miniaturization for, for satellites and such, um, um, we also propose uh, solid-state-based systems. One of the major drawbacks of solid-state-based systems is that they need um, physical cooling, so such as a cryocooler. And uh, while there are cryocoolers available for for space missions, like even for smaller satellites, commercially available, um, but also like for for bigger systems, just as uh, such as the James Webb Telescope uh, with the Miri infra- infrared sensor, um, like these systems are. are Major like bulk factor, like a, a major size and weight factor in the deployment of such systems. So when it comes to solid state systems, this will be the main uh, main area where we would uh, need to focus on with miniaturization. Um, so um, the, there's pros and cons for every system. Um, it's hard to say. By now, like, who will win the race? I guess we will see a mixture, like we will probably see miniaturized uh, ultra-cold atom systems or even warm vapor cell systems, uh, which can also be easily miniaturized. And and then in the end, we will see uh, what kind of system makes sense. It also depends a lot on on what kind of experiments you, you want to run in the end.
1: Okay. I mean, I suppose that's typical, Michael, isn't it, of, of quantum technology and quantum computing in general, that there's lots of different competing uh, quantum memories uh, that could be used. And we, we haven't quite worked out which ones are are, are the best for, for different applications. Um, exactly. So yeah. It's a pretty typical quantum situation, isn't it?
0: Exactly, yeah. So one thing you also have to keep in mind is that every memory system also comes with its inherent strengths and, uh, and weaknesses. Uh, solid state systems, for example, have uh, really great coherence times up to uh, six hours. Spin coherence in some solid state systems, and one hour optical storage. Um, while the cold atom gas systems uh, are uh, much better at achieving high optical efficiencies um, at the moment. So it's really a, a trade off that that needs to be balanced in each case.
1: And and looking to the future. Lisa, what, what sort of quantum memories in space experiments would you like to see?
2: So the first one for me, obviously, is the, um, the long-range Bell test. That's the one that also tells us like, on which distances QKD is actually possible and what kind of networks can we build.
1: Sorry, when you, when you say QKD, that's quantum key distribution, which is a, a type of cryptography system that uses quantum principles.
2: Sorry, yes, correct, this is this is the quantum key distribution. And the other one that I'm very, very excited about is um, the equivalence principle. So I talked a lot about the uh, universality of free fall, but there are two more systems to that, which test whether time is the same everywhere or time is the same depending on the system that one uses. And here, using the coherent entangled uh, system of distributed sensing or distributed clock, a uh, distributed clock network using quantum memories, this would be something that I would be very very excited about to see this um, kind of test improved using uh, quantum memories and entangled states.
1: And and how about you, Michael? What what sort of quantum experiments are you looking forward to seeing in space?
0: Yeah. So I second uh, the the. Um Desire to to see like a long range Bell tests. Especially the nice thing about quantum memories is that uh, if we can get them to store quantum states for a prolonged time, and let's say we can store it for for a second or two, then this opens up like these um, um, experiments where. We could send photons uh, in between Earth and Moon and actually have a photon stored uh, locally at the Moon and have actually two human beings uh, involved in the Bell test choosing the, the basis in which they measure and, and uh, close the, the so-called freedom of choice loophole uh, that, that's been <laughs> proposed in the community. It's, sometimes it's regarded a rather philosophical question, but I think it's, it's an interesting experiment nevertheless and then also with regards to what uh, lisa mentioned with the optical clock networks uh, there's in general the possibility to link up sensors with entanglement into like distributed uh, sensor networks and and this could be a great resource for example at some point in the future having satellite networks with with um, with high resolution high precision uh, sensors <laughs>
1: one thing I wanted to ask uh, both of you about is um, applications in astronomy. Um, You know, for example, creating um, a sensor that could uh, detect gravitational waves somehow, you know, using some sort of quantum enhancement. Well, I I suppose LIGO on Earth already uses quantum enhancement. Is that something that you see coming shortly? uh, Or are we going to have to wait for that sort of thing?
2: Absolutely. The the question is, what do you mean by shortly? Um, I see that on the horizon with the technology that we are developing in BCAL and possibly something that might be a a universality of free fall test first. And then I could see an atom-based or cold atom-based gravitational wave detector. The The proposal is called EDGE, so there is a proposal there, uh, also in the Cold Atom Roadmap that we assembled for ESA. Um, There's this also in in there, looking forward to these kind of things. And of course, using a quantum entangled system, this could be enhanced. Also already using quantum entangled systems without the cold atoms on the other side, this might be a a reasonable choice to go there and have a look at these astronomy Questions, as you say, so there is a huge effort that is done in that way, and similar to LIGO, um, there is an idea which was led by a French consortium for having something on ground in a in a cavern somewhere in a ta- in, in a cave somewhere, which is called ELGA. So there are some uh, proposals there to do that with uh, with uh, cold atoms.
1: And uh, another thing that I don't think we touched on is is using quantum memories, quantum sensors for for making sort of precision measurements in particle physics. You know, the idea of, you know, instead of bashing particles together at the LHC, I'm going to make a very precise measurement on an atom and see if I can spot any physics beyond the standard model. Is there, would there be any reason to do some of those experiments in space? Would there be any advantage or, or would you be better off doing those sort of precision experiments on Earth?
2: So now we are entering into the realm of what Michael so nicely christened uh, philosophical ideas. So, yes, there are some ideas of doing that. Um, Maybe the more promising one for real fundamental physics is to increase the particle size and see of the limits of quantum mechanics. This this is surely one thing where we would need to go to space for Um, doing these things on ground is. has always the advantage that there's more control over the state. Like you can access the laboratory. And so I can see how these things are first developed on ground, also the theoretical background as, what, as to what we would have to see on the atom, as to what we would have to see in the entanglement, um, and then a, a ground test And once all of this is established, the development of a su- suited space system that then can answer these questions.
1: Okay, great. Well, thanks, thanks, Lisa and Michael. Thanks for, um, for, for coming on the podcast. That was a fascinating discussion.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Um, it's always good to, to talk to you and to talk to guys. So I'm, I'm very happy that you asked us for this.
0: Yeah, Thank you, it was a pleasure.
1: That was Lisa Werner and Jan Michael Moll of the German Aerospace Center. The paper we referred to is called Quantum Memories for Fundamental Science in Space, and it's published in the journal Quantum Science and Technology. You can read it free of charge on the IOP Science website. Staying on a quantum theme, April 14th is World Quantum Day, and here at Physics World, we're joining forces with our journals and e-books colleagues at IOP Publishing to celebrate all Things Quantum. The Physics World Weekly podcast will have a quantum theme, and on the website, we will highlight a selection of quantum related feature articles, interviews, and analysis pieces. Our colleagues in journals and ebooks will also be showcasing some of their best quantum content, and related ebooks will be offered at a discount. So don't miss out on the Quantum Day celebrations here at IOP Publishing. But you don't have to wait until the 14th of April to listen to what happens when physicists and musicians join forces to create music using quantum processes. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories Podcast, host Andrew Glester chats with the science writer Philip Ball, who attended a recital of quantum music in London and wrote a feature article about the new genre in Physics World. Andrew also speaks to Maria Menone, who is a composer as well as a theoretical physicist working on quantum information. And Andrew, of course, plays some quantum music. That episode of the Stories podcast is called Quantum Melodies, the Intersection of Music and Quantum Physics. And you can find it on the Physics World website or at your favourite podcast provider. And you can also find Philip Ball's article on the website. Just look for the headline, Can We Use Quantum Computers to Make Music? I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to our producer Fred Isles and to Lisa Werner and Jan Michael Mole for joining me today. And a special thanks to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Pfeiffer Vacuum provides all types of vacuum equipment, including hybrid and magnetically levitated turbo pumps, leak detectors and analysis equipment. As well as vacuum chambers and systems. You can explore all of its products at Pfeiffer vacuum.com. See you next week.
0: Physics World